The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning again, everyone, and welcome. Very delighted to have all of you here with me and us this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you through Christ, your son. We pray in his name. Amen. It's the third Sunday in Advent, and probably the single greatest mistake about this season is that it's a preparation for Christmas. It isn't. Not really. It's primarily a preparation for the second coming of Christ. And so the mood that hangs over the church at Advent is that of urgency. There's a sense of the urgent in the midst of Advent. And that sense of urgency is especially created through John the Baptist. It's this sense that something decisive is about to happen. It's what he's speaking about. That something is about to happen, not only in the world in general, but in your life as well. And so this week, in the middle of these two weeks, We come to John the Baptist, and now the greatest dissonance in John the Baptist becomes very acute. Do you know this word dissonance? Dissonance? We haven't had a word of the day. It's going to be our word of the day for the day. So let's say it on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Dissonance. It's the opposite of harmony. It's this harsh, inharmonious noise. And I won't lead music at weddings, even small ones. It's a rule that I have. I broke this rule once and just once, and it was bad. It was a small wedding in a small town in a small chapel. There were no live music or musicians. It was all recordings that were being played on the sound system. And there was one congregational hymn. The congregational hymn was In Christ Alone, which is beautiful. It's a classic modern hymn, but one that has an incredible range that covers multiple octaves and If you aren't careful, it can get really high, like Justin Timberlake falsetto sort of high, and I wasn't careful that day. In fact, I have a history of starting songs too early, so now 
You'll notice that David Lutz leads Jesus Loves Me at baptisms because I started those singing so high at times, people were almost passing out trying to get to the end of the song. So they took that away from me. But on that day, I started in Christ alone too high. And what made it even worse was that I was mic'd up and no one else sang at all, including my wife. She didn't sing. She was trying her hardest not to laugh the entire time. And it wasn't in Christ alone. It was in Tim alone. It was terrible. It was so bad. There were so many verses printed. I had to just keep going and going. And I got to no power of hell in that song. And I thought, this is hell for everyone in this room. There's a great amount of dissonance in that chapel that morning. But also too this morning here in in this interim sanctuary, there's so much dissonance. Did you notice in our readings that the first two readings speak about rejoicing and joy? It's a primary theme. But then we come to our gospel reading with John the Baptist, and it opens with, you brood of vipers. It's not joy. It's judgment. And those emphases are as dissonant as Advent's mood is from our culture's general holiday spirit with, with all the nostalgia and all the sentimentality that comes into it. There's no sentimentality with John, none whatsoever. And so how do we resolve the dissonance of Advent? Two points this morning. What Advent forces upon us? And then secondly, what Advent focuses us upon? So first of all, what Advent forces upon us? You brood of vipers, question is, who's he saying that to? A brood is a group of animals that are all born at the same time. You may know that, like chickens or even snakes. And so it's a synonym for children. And that makes sense as to why John uses this word, because in verse eight, this group's claim, as we learn, is that they are children of Abraham. And they're, they're proud about it. There's a pride and an entitlement to it. And so John knows that this is what they're thinking. And so he calls them a brood of vipers or children of snakes. Think the snake the snake of the garden. In other words, children of Satan. John is not concerned with making friends or influencing people. That is John. And to whom does he say this? Well, in verse seven and verse 10, it says simply the crowds. And that doesn't help us very much. It's a fairly general term, but in this passage, it's set in contrast to two other groups. In verse 12, tax collectors are mentioned. And then in verse 14, it's the Roman soldiers who are mentioned. And that helps us because throughout the book of Luke, tax collectors and Roman soldiers are especially set in contrast to the Pharisees, the most religious, church-going type of people in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus heals a Roman soldier's servant. This Roman soldier comes to him and says, Jesus, heal my servant. He says, okay, let's go to your house. He said, no, you can't come into my house but I know your power. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found faith such as this. And he says that before the Pharisees. And then there's Luke 18, the famous parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And of course, it's the tax collector who ends up reconciled with God and forgiven of his sins. While the Pharisee asks what from God? Do you remember? Nothing. He asks nothing from God because apparently he needs nothing from God. And so he asks for nothing. He's given nothing from God. And so overall, this contrast throughout the book of Luke and even these harsh opening words, they tell us that this crowd is a religious crowd. It's the church-going crowd. It's the publicly moral, the well-respected, the probably socially approved 
crowd, whose tendency, if they're going to fall off uh, the, the path of following after God, is not towards all sorts of notorious sin, but all sorts of self-righteousness. And so why are these people coming to John? That's what he wants to know. You brood of vipers. In other words, why are you here? He evidently doesn't think it's out of sincerity or any genuine desire to put into practice what he's saying, which is to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because if the rest of the book is any indication, these folks have, they don't think that they have anything really that pressing to repent of. Like Luke 18, you remember what the Pharisee says there? I'm not like other men. That's what he prays. He thanks God that he's not like others. And so why are they here? Seems to be that it's just because it was the thing to do. It was the thing to do in Israel at the time. The culturally religious thing to do, the socially accepted, maybe even the socially expected thing for people in their position, for people like them to do. And so they showed up there. It raises the question for us, the crowds, why are we here this morning? Because attendance increases at Advent. Why? Nostalgia, maybe? Sentimentality, maybe? Maybe it's the socially accepted, maybe even socially expected thing to do at this time of year, even in a post-Christian context like Austin. Maybe it's still that thing. And so let me ask you, does John's skepticism about your motives in being here and his unapologetic emphasis on judgment, does it make you uncomfortable at all? Or does it leave you a little bit annoyed, especially two weeks with John? It's always two weeks. Do you time by, by the time you get to the second week of John, the third week of Advent, do you think, do we really need this again? Because I do. I've preached probably more sermons on John than any other character in the scriptures. And by the third week of Advent, the second time that I'm getting to John, I'm thinking, do I really have to go through John again? And, and Alyssa knows this. She hears me complain about this. And this year she says, can't you just get around him? And I thought, that's what we want to do. It's what I want to do. Get to the joy without judgment. Get to Christmas without Advent. But we have to ask ourselves, do we really think that John's message is as important for us as other people that we know? Or are we like this Pharisee, one that thinks, you know what, I'm really thankful I'm not them. I'm not him, her, that family. Because that's a very dangerous place to be spiritually. Author Flannery O'Connor is one who has taught me this more than anyone. Uh, she's got a very John the Baptist third week of Advent vibe to all of her writings. And she once famously said, when you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs as you, you can relax a little and use nor more normal means of talking to it. When you have to assume that it does not share your same beliefs, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the heart of hearing, you shout, and to the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. And John the Baptist is a large and startling figure. Almost all of her characters, especially the main characters in her novels and short stories, they're large and startling figures, including Hazel Motes, who's the main character in her novel, Wise Blood. Hazel is a very religious man. He's one of the crowds, for sure. He comes from a long line of religious crowd people a long line of preachers, in fact, and by age 12, he knows that he himself is going to be a preacher. And throughout the book, the goal of his life from a very young age all the way throughout his life is to avoid sin at all costs. He's afraid to go fight in a, the war in Europe because he's afraid that doing so will draw him into a life of sin. But he still goes. It still doesn't draw him into a life of sin, such as his self-discipline, such as his moral resolve. 
And at one point in the novel, Flannery reveals what's driving this moral resolve and amazing self-discipline. She says, it's because Hazel thinks that the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. Say that again. That the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. In other words, sin as little as possible. Be as outwardly good, as publicly good and moral as you possibly can be so that you and others will think that you need as little from God as possible. Need as little of his grace, as little of his forgiveness and strength as possible in order that he might have as little claim on your life as possible. And you get to keep yourself to yourself. It's a twisted way of thinking. It's common in Flannery's day and age in the, in the, the Christian South. And it's also still very common in our day, in our age. Sin as very little as possible, at least outwardly, publicly, notoriously. Assume you need as little from God as possible so that you have to give as little of yourself as possible over to him. And Advent refuses to allow that. John the Baptist, two weeks with him, refuses to allow that sort of thinking to go unchecked because the goal of Advent, really the goal of the Christian life is actually to freely, willingly, fully give yourself over to God with all joy and thankfulness for who he is and what he has done, not generally in the world and in history, but in your life to actually give yourself over. And so Advent forces us to take a very real look at ourselves, at our own lives, at our own hearts, as one author said, to do a fearless inventory of what's actually going on in your souls right now. And to look, to look at the darkness within as well as the darkness around us. And to ask, are you looking? Maybe you're, you need to ask yourself if you're looking at your need for approval and of affirmation from others, this unceasing drive and demand that you have to live up to everyone's expectation. And maybe to ask, is that, is that driven? Is that in me? And is that driven? Is it put there by vanity? It's a very vain time right now in our world, in our culture. The holidays are vain in so many ways. Uh, or what the Christian tradition has called vain glory, meaning empty praise, empty importance, empty significance that's there for a moment and then gone like a, a warm breath on a cold morning like this. It's there and then it's gone. Rebecca DeYoung, whom I've quoted to you before, especially about this, she says, what makes vainglory distinct from pride is the love of the show. Prideful people want more than anything else to be number one. The vainglorious, on the other hand, do not aspire to something because it is excellent. Rather, they seek whatever will bring the most public applause. The whole point for the vainglorious is that others take notice of them. It's a very vain time right now. You caught up in it? Are you caught up in how others look at you? Are you even looking at yourself or concerned that others are looking at you? And are you even too busy to notice what's going on around you and the world around you? Advent forces us to take a look and to admit that we are actually like other men, other people, and realize that our need for God and our needs that only he can meet are far greater than we had ever dreamed. So that's what Advent forces upon us. The second point, here's what it focuses us upon. And to put it bluntly, judgment. Don't blame me, it's John the Baptist, second week with him. The two agricultural metaphors here bookend our passage. The first is a fruit tree being cut down by an ax because it doesn't bear fruit. And the second is a wheat harvest. And if you aren't familiar with wheat harvests, wheat kernels have to be separated from everything else. So the heads of grain are cut off from the stalks and then the kernels have to be separated. And the chaff 
which John speaks about here, are the stalks and the parts of the head that hold the grain. It all has to be separated. And in the ancient world, they used sickles to cut off the heads of the grain from the stalk, and then they would take those heads to this place called a threshing hill. It was usually a a high hill where the wind would blow, and they would beat or thresh the heads of grains and grain and then toss them up in the air, and the heavier kernels would fall to the ground while the, the lighter stalk and the chaff would be blown away. That's John's image along with a tree being cut down with an ax, two images of judgment. And then our passage ends with Luke saying, with many other exhortations, John preached good news. Preached good news? How how is that good news? Well, it's good news to those who have very real basic needs like food or like clothing or security, protection and shelter. Because what John says is that when God comes, he'll put a stop to all of those people who have extra and who are not sharing their extra with those that have none. He'll put an end to all non-sharing, all selfish withholding. That's verses 10 and 11. And then in verses 13 and 14, he talks about stealing. Tax collectors would steal. They would collect more taxes for the Roman government than the Romans required. They would line their pockets with it, stealing. And then the Roman soldiers, they would steal, but in more mafia sort of ways. They would go to people and say, they would threaten them with physical harm unless they paid them. Or they would say, I'm gonna put you in prison unless you pay me. So they stole as well. And if you are someone who is in serious need and there are others around you who aren't sharing that which they have so that you can have your basic needs met, or if you're someone that's being repeatedly robbed by those in power and authority over you and God shows up on the scene and he stops it, that's good news. It's not good news for those who aren't sharing or for those who are stealing, but it is good news for those who are suffering at their hands. So Advent focuses us upon the good news that all suffering in all forms will someday end and those who are responsible for that suffering, they will be dealt with by God. He will deal with them. And so if you're a resident of the Northern Tigray region in Ethiopia, especially if you are a woman or a child there and you are seeing all the humanitarian aid that's being brought into your country stolen, and all the atrocities such as the mass killings and the rape and the looting by soldiers on both sides of the conflict, all of that happening, then the message and the images of John here of those who are not sharing and those who are stealing being cut down and burned or blown away, that's good news. Also for the faithful wife, it's good news for the faithful wife whose husband has left her. Now she's a single mom. And she's primarily responsible for the children and she has too little money to meet all of the the needs that they have. And she's also dealing with all of the emotional difficulty of being left and rejected by her husband. This is good news for her as well. And for the child, the middle school child, the elementary school child, who's always the butt of jokes, or he's always, or she's always the one that's alone in the hallways or always the one being bullied. This is good news for them as well, because righteous judgment is good news for the suffering and for the oppressed. An Advent is a time for those who are suffering to begin imagining joy again and rest and peace and comfort again. And it's also time for those who cause that suffering to be again imagining falling into the pit that they themselves have dug. That's Psalm 7, verse 15. It's a pervasive theme throughout the Psalms that those who do harm now, eventually they will experience their own harm rebound upon themselves. So Psalm 7, verse 15, he makes a pit, digging it out, and he falls into the pit that he has made. 
His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull, his violence descends. Ad is a time for some to begin fearing that future because it forces us to look at our own darkness, the darkness around us, and it focuses us upon the judgment that does come and will come with Jesus. But the judgment was not what John expected. It's not what anyone expected. Listen to Fleming Rutledge. She says, something has happened. John's preaching sets it in motion. With the announcement of John, the world begins to turn on its hinges. The final reckoning is going to take place. And so the judge of all the universe arrives on the scene. But it is not as we thought. The face of the judge is marked with infinite suffering. His hands and his feet are torn by spikes driven by violent blows. His brow pierced with the crown of thorns bears the tokens of utmost humiliation. The judgment has already happened. It has taken place in his own body. The son of God has borne it all himself. The judge who is to come has given himself to be judged in our place already. The news of judgment and the news of salvation arrive at the same time. In Jesus, the news of judgment and the news of salvation arrive at the same time. And we see this in John's image. Three years ago when I preached on this same passage on the third Sunday in Advent, I asked you the question, who's the wheat and who's the chaff? Who is it? Who among us? Who's the wheat and who's the chaff? Who are the ones that God is going to gather to himself with great rejoicing because their suffering is over, their loss and their pain has ended? And who is it that he's going to cut down and blow away and burn? told you then, I'll tell you now, I don't know. And that is for God to answer and for God to sort out in the end. But here's the first and the foremost answer to that of who's the wheat and who's the chaff. The wheat and the chaff are Jesus. He is both. Because in John 12, Jesus, right before going to the cross, he says, the hour has come for me to be glorified. For truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is the wheat. He's the grain of wheat that fell into the earth, laid in the tomb, dead, having died under his own judgment, out of great love and infinite grace for us, died under his own judgment to forgive us of our sins. In other words, he became the chaff that was burned. He became the chaff that was blown away, that he might rise from the dead and be planted like a seed in our own hearts, in the soil of our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Friends, there's one There's one essential way, especially essential way to describe what a Christian is. And that is a Christian is not someone who's always shared everything. A Christian is not someone who's never stolen or has never harmed or betrayed or done damage to others. It's not a Christian. A Christian is someone in whose heart the living grain of Jesus has been planted by the Holy Spirit. Jesus plants himself in the hearts of those who believe. And he begins to rid our hearts of all the chaff of sin and darkness and selfishness and sadness and fear and insecurity and begins to reap a harvest of joy. Today is the day in which we begin to lean into that harvest of joy, which is to come, which has begun to come, but is especially to come, to begin to yearn for it more, to begin to seek it and to reach for it even more, to begin to bear the fruits of repentance that Jesus says he's already beginning to cultivate and to reap in our own hearts. In other words, to stop not sharing. There's so many ways we could apply that. It's not just about our money. It's about our time. It's about our emotions. It's about our relationships. 
and to stop stealing. It's not just about money. It's about everything. There's so many ways we could steal and do. And he says to be content with your wages. Don't just apply that literally. Do you have a spouse? Do you have a family? Do you have a job? Do you have a home? Do you have shelter? Do you have clothes? Do you have food? Do you have friends? Do you have decent health? Rejoice. Rejoice. Those are God's good gifts to you. And do you not have them? Has any or all of that been taken from you, stolen from you, not shared with you? You can begin to rejoice now. You can. Because everything that has been taken will be restored. Everything that has been lost will be returned. Everything sad will become untrue and all things will be made new. All things. And the Apostle Paul says, as for your life now, pray. Pray to the judge who was judged in your place. Out of great love, infinite grace, pray. Do not be anxious about anything, anything. But in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts, will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus until the day of Christ Jesus when he comes to set our world, our hearts, our relationships, the entire world to right. We can rejoice in his judgment. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would know your love and your kindness to us in Christ this day. And that you would pour out your spirit that we might follow you and embrace all of that which you are for us, that we might recognize deep within us that which we have become in and of ourselves and know that you still love us and that you turn to us and you call us back to yourself. We pray that we would heed that call, that we would follow that call, even this day. And we praise this in Jesus' name. Amen.